Good evening, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good evening. How are you doing on this Saturday night, early evening out here, Eastern time? I hope you all are doing well. I know there's a bit of a lag, so I'm just going to let you all come in. Please let me know how I sound. I do have an air conditioner on because it is quite muggy today. And so we were able to get an air conditioner installed thanks to uh, the great super who lives in my building, whose brother actually, I think, follows my work. I actually met him today for the first time, which was great. I love meeting people who uh, who follow my work and who get something out of it. Uh, it is really gratifying. And it's uh, usually people, real people, working people. Uh, some, there, I've met some wealthy people who follow my work, but it's usually very few and far between. And usually they have some deep connection to the movement. So it's always really nice to meet people who read your work and to know uh, where they're coming from, to know that they're relating to it on so many levels, especially at a class level, at a level where uh, they can relate to it from, from a deep personal, but also a deep political experience. So in any event, as you're coming in, like the stream, like the stream. This is a chill stream today. It'll be a quick one. Probably about an hour, maybe a little longer. That's generally how I go, how long I go anyway. But as you're coming, of course, you know, like the stream, continue to subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. You know, you all know that all these platforms are really coming down hard. They're coming down really hard uh, on people on the left, like myself. So you want to make sure that you're subscribing to the channel, hitting that notifications bell so you know when to come. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, send me a message, send me an email, send, or put it in the comments or the chat. And they say that they cannot, they don't get notices when I'm coming on live, that the notifications are all screwed up. So with that said, it's quite clear that uh, this channel is being throttled. It's quite clear that all my social media at this point are being throttled. Uh, it's happening on Twitter. It's very obvious to me that my followers have stagnated of late. So I've been asking people, you know, I still have, it's the end of May. And May is coming to a close. We're heading into the summer period, at least uh, for those of us here in the United States on the East Coast. So it weather was so, you know, I understand that people got a lot to do. But with that said, there is a huge attack on people like myself trying to disseminate this kind of media. So please do support the work. I'm still a few subscribers away on Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong from my monthly goal. I believe I'm about three away from the 10 that I was hoping to gain this month so you can support me in the link in the description there's also other ways to support my work annually on Substack, and then of course all the one-time options you can find all of that in the description but nonetheless keep liking the stream as you're coming in keep hitting that notifications bell and subscribing to the channel share 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 welcome everyone how are you doing how are you doing um so i'm going to talk about taiwan I was on the great Margaret Flowers' program yesterday doing a recording, which will be out next week, uh, Clearing the Fog podcast episode where we talked all about China. It got me motivated 
to talk about this issue of Taiwan because it, it hasn't really been spoken about. There have been so many things going on that have enveloped and really engulfed the media landscape, especially the mass shooting in Ovalde, which I will make some more comments on at the end. But I wanted to center this. And of course, the Ukraine crisis continues. And uh, there's a lot of indications that Russia is really sweeping up eastern Ukraine, Donbass region, heading toward victory at that level. But I've been listening to a lot of Scott Ritter lately, hoping to have him on the program eventually. And I do agree with his analysis that, of course, this is being prolonged and that the U.S.'s financing and military aid is going to cause problems with the overall political objectives that Russia set out, denazification, demilitarization. However, the East, right, this Donbass region is is really seeming to be a, 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 a site, a battleground uh, that is leading to victory for Russia, at least on that front. But nonetheless, these stories have been taking up a lot of airspace and the Taiwan question has not so much. Right? It hasn't been receiving that much attention. So I'm going to be talking about that today and then I'll comment a little bit more on Ovalde as we've been getting more information about the behavior of the police. So I will be commenting on that as well. So continue to like the stream. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. Uh, Davos has a quick question about Sophia Huang. What can you tell us about her situation in China? Uh, that's hard to say. Uh, there hasn't been much other reporting other than BBC and corporate media about her situation. Over the past several years, she's gotten into trouble. Uh, she, if you don't know, she participated in the Hong Kong protests and was one of these journalists that was reporting from them. Uh, she's a character that's very shady, very hard to find information about her, but no doubt she's a part of kind of like this opposition, right, uh, that resides in places like Radio Free Asia. And so politically, we can kind of see where she's coming from, but it's hard to know what's going on exactly with her case because there isn't much reportage in Chinese media about it and the U.S. media. I can't really trust it. So I'm not going to comment so much on that just yet until... Uh, I find out and we find out more information, but uh, no doubt she is a shady character and her participation in the Hong Kong protests or enthusiastic support for them uh, is a red flag for me and also all the support she's getting from all the anti-China NGOs. So nonetheless, hello, Trevorn. Hello, Nadia. Good to be here. Thanks for coming on this Saturday evening. Uh, bb <laughs> torches and pitchforks uh thank you for that comment uh and devo says yes really skeptical yeah yeah i'm skeptical too and so we're going to yeah let's just jump right in you know uh continue to like the stream continue to uh do whatever you can to support this subscribe to the channel etc so I wanted to talk about Joe Biden's latest comments on Taiwan. So I don't know if you've been following what's been happening with the U.S. and Taiwan of late. And there has been a bit of a shift in the narrative around Taiwan since the Ukraine crisis, since Russia's special military operation in Ukraine began in late February. And that shift has been very troubling and very, 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 very problematic. 
that shift is characterized by a constant discussion within the political establishment and in the corporate media of a comparison between Ukraine and Taiwan that the you the the example of Russia's special military operation in Ukraine can be directly compared to China's relationship to Taiwan which inevitably means that the United States and its allies especially its western allies are going to have to figure out how to intervene in a similar manner that they have when it comes to Russia. However, the caveat here is that actually the rhetoric and the behavior around Taiwan especially just in the last couple of weeks has been even more belligerent than how the United States has responded and the West has responded to Russia's special military operation if you can believe that. But we we but it's not something to be believed in. This is actually true. So what Joe Biden said, okay, on May 23rd, he said in a press conference in Japan with the new prime minister, Fumio Kishida, okay, so he was in Japan on May 23rd. He declared that he would be prepared to use military force to defend Taiwan if mainland China invaded. So that goes beyond what the U.S. has ever said it was willing to do in response to Russia's special military operation. So Joe Biden said in a trip to Asia, and this trip was to, pr to promote the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which there really isn't much to talk about with that. It's a, it, it's a, it's a so-called non-free trade agreement. It's something... That's likely not even to get off the ground. The U.S. won't make any economic commitments that are worth incentivizing countries like Japan, South Korea, and others to move away from China. But it's all about trying to build the rudiments of an independent supply chain to choke China, to get China isolated economically. So as Joe Biden was doing this, he this is what he said. And, and some were like, oh, that's a gaffe. And the State Department even almost treated it like a gaffe. Because immediately after he said this, the State Department rolled the comments back. And that was the story that went, uh, that went across the corporate media. Of course, Fox News and others, Washington Times and all the right-wing publications, right-wing, you know, the GOP aligned publications, used it as an example to show how kind of feckless and inconsistent Biden is. And the corporate media was kind of the liberal corporate media was kind of doing damage control, saying, "Okay, well, Joe Biden did this, but he's walking it back." But some were even saying that we should believe him, right? The New York Times said we should believe him. The Wall Street Journal said we should believe him that this is a possibility. So that recently happened on May twenty third. Okay. And immediately, Joe Biden, State Department, walked it back. But there's something that you all should know about Joe Biden and how he's been talking about Taiwan. This isn't the first time that Joe Biden has said that the United States has a military commitment to Taiwan. And if China invades, then the United States would have to take concrete military action. He's done it two times before. 
So three, and this is all within the last 12 months. So two times before he's done this, similar thing happened. The White House, State Department, they walk it back. But nonetheless, he keeps doing it. And so it lends, I think, a lot of credibility to the idea that we should be believing Joe Biden when he says this. And now I want to pull up just a quick article that I think makes a really good case for why this is not just dangerous, but also based on fabrication. So the fabrication is that China is somehow going to invade Taiwan in order uh, uh, to reunify Taiwan with China. And just a quick bit of facts that you should know, China and Taiwan both consider themselves China. And the one China policy states that Taiwan is actually part of China. And that was established to begin in 1972 with the joint communique during the Nixon delegation to China, which led to the normalization of relations. So the one China policy is the policy here that Biden is violating. And Taiwan now, for so many years, especially it really heightened during the Trump era, has been talked about as almost a separate entity, dare I say a separate state. And this has been very problematic. And Joe Biden's comments only reinforce this very problematic turn. And that turn has also domestically taken form politically with the Democratic Progressive Party, I think it's called. The ruling party in Taiwan is a separatist party. It goes against the status quo, which is the Republic of China that was formed after the revolution when the nationalists fled. They established a, so, a, a kind of bourgeois, quote unquote, dictatorship in Taiwan. But they considered themselves part of China, the just the rightful government of China, right? They didn't consider themselves separate. And that was actually one thing that Mao and Chiang Kai-shek could agree upon. It was that China's integrity as one civilization, as one country, should be respected. Now, almost everything else they couldn't agree upon <laughs> economically and politically. But those things they could. And so the one China policy is supposed to stipulate it was really kind of put into firm, firmer words, it's really not a firm agreement because the United States also follows something called the Taiwan Relations Act, which Jimmy Carter passed, which says that the United States has the right to essentially militarize the island. So the United States has been sending, and I'm going to pull up something later, has been sending just billions upon billions upon billions in military weapons to Taiwan, right? It's it's an annual kind of expenditure that continues onward. Taiwan receives all sorts of weapons, a lot of them old weapons, but nonetheless, Taiwan is highly militarized, right? So the U.S. has a deep presence in Taiwan, which is very troubling. And this dates back all the way in 1949, 1950, when the U.S. tried to use Taiwan as a launching pad, essentially, for its Cold War with China. The United States panicked after the 1949 revolution because they had been trying to 
politically maneuver in China during the Second World War and even directly afterward to come up with some kind of provisional government that would not allow the communists to take power, even though that was inevitable and the United States knew that. But they tried to when they tried to prop up and give the nationalists, the KMT, political room to rule, right? Supported them heavily, supported them heavily in the war against Japan. And eventually the Americans abandoned Chiang Kai-shek because it was a losing cause and the commun the communists, the Communist Party of China was the People's Liberation Army was moving toward victory. Right. And establishing the new democracy that uh, uh, Mao talked about. So Taiwan was then used as a launching pad. And immediately the U.S. sailed ships through the Taiwan Strait and threatened China with nuclear war. So we can thank Daniel Ellsberg for actually dumping the documents recently. I think that was within the last year and a half. Violating the Espionage Act and dumping the documents that said actually... The United States threatened China with nuclear war over the issue of Taiwan. So this is a long historical trend, right? That's all about trying to weaken and divide and denigrate and hopefully and ultimately in the eyes of the imperialists, the U.S. imperialists, overthrow the People's Republic of China. And Taiwan has always been at the center of that. And that is only intensified now that there's a separatist government there a really compliant government there, a uh, local administration that is driving things. So I want to pull up this article because I think it makes some good points about why this is a ridiculous notion to believe that the United States, that China is going to invade Taiwan. And so it was written in the South China Morning Post by a gentleman, uh, Wang Xiangwei. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because a lot of the points I just made uh, are kind of repeated in it. So, but he talks about how the U.S. president's remarks on Taiwan only serve to raise suspicions that Washington is moving towards scrapping its policy of strategic ambiguity. That just means that the United States says it follows and adheres to the one China policy, but also says that Taiwan, uh, that it has the right to arm Taiwan and to kind of be politically involved so there's a strategic ambiguity there. There's not one policy that the U.S. follows. Basically, it means the U.S. is very inconsistent to be kind about it. So it's hard to overstate the implication of his so-called blunders. He should know better than goading China into a military confrontation neither side wants. Neither side wants, he says. So I'm going to go to... Um, what he's talking about. So he talks about strategic ambiguity. Uh, so he talks about the Taiwan Relations Act, which commits the U.S. to providing weapons and other support for the island if Beijing invades, quote unquote. So I want to go to the point where he talks about the arguments. So among Washington's policy wonks, there have been rising calls in recent years for the U.S. to scrap this policy and Instead, state clearly that it would intervene militarily to defend Taiwan in the event of an invasion. The argument being that the U that the might of the U.S. military will deter China because China is on the eve of invading. That's the kind of logic here. So there have been rising concerns about Beijing's assertive stance on territorial issues such as Taiwan and the South China Sea. Such arguments serve no purpose other than inflaming tensions. 
Beijing has already accused Washington of hollowing out the one China principle by increasing official exchanges and military interactions with Taiwan, which the U.S. tried to avoid in the past on top of selling arms to the self-ruled island. Given the deepening mistrust between China and the U.S., Biden's latest remarks on Taiwan will surely enhance suspicions, yada, yada. So he asks a bunch of questions, but he, then he goes to the false equivalencies. So this is good because this is talking about why it's ridiculous to talk about Taiwan like Ukraine. This is what we need to really look at. So he says it is worth noting that Biden's latest defense pledge is part of efforts to dial up tensions over Taiwan in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Intense discussions in international media seem to give the false impression that mainland China's troops are poised to invade Taiwan at any moment or at least in the next few years. But there have been no signs whatsoever from Beijing that this is the case, not least because launching an invasion of such a magnitude would necessitate not only years of secretive military buildup, but also very public efforts to prepare the population for war. Very reasonable. Taiwan literally sits outside of mainland China. Actually, I don't know if you remember the ridiculous air defense zone, the so-called ADZ that the United States has made so much of that it actually encapsulates. It was actually formed by the U.S. and after World War II. But it actually cuts into mainland China. So that's how close Taiwan is to China, the island of Taiwan. So China has never publicly set a timetable for Taiwan's reunification with the mainland, though some international analysts references President Xi Jinping's grand vision laid out in 2017 for China to become a leading world power by 2035. Given his personal ambitions, these analysts deduce that China that Xi's Chinese dream must also include reunification of with Taiwan through peaceful means or military force. But common sense dictates that for Beijing to reach its 2035 target its target to as i said become a world power which it's well on its way it needs a stable international environment for its economy to develop very true any premature move on taiwan and the subsequent international fallout could set china's development uh, back for years if not decades china beijing's leaders have a much deeper sense of historical perspective when it comes to taiwan and more stamina than the outside world credits them with to maintain strategic patience. However, China should guard against being goaded into military confrontation with the U.S. with its economic development at a critical stage, a view shared by many Chinese observers. So then he's going to talk about China's intentions toward Taiwan. He says, it's enlightening to look at what led the evening news on national television on May 24th, the day after Biden's Taiwan defense pledge, a story about a letter she wrote in reply to an American friend from the state of Iowa. Sarah Land first met Xi in 1985 when he was a, but a county-level party secretary. He visited her home in the city of Muscatine, which he returned to as a guest in 2012 when he was vice president. In his letter, she said that the Chinese and Americans are both great peoples, adding that their friendship is not only a valuable asset, but an important foundation for the development of, bi of bilateral relations. China's angry response to Biden's latest pledge on Taiwan did not even warn a mention that night on Chinese state television premier evening news program, widely considered the most blah, 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 blah. So anyway, this has some kind of back and forth things, but China's angry. I think it's reasonable to understand why China is angry that Biden would say such a thing. 
But as this author said, there, Xi Jinping has taken a strategic orientation that cooperation with the United States first. And I think the point is very good that economic development would be hindered. Look at what happened with Russia. I mean, Russia is, we talk a lot about the ruble. A lot of people have talked a lot about the ruble kind of uh, sky, you know, skyrocketing in value. And that's great. And, and Russia has restructured a lot to be able to withstand the onslaught. But there is no doubt that this crisis has led to problems for Russia economically, right? That this, the seizing of assets, that uh, kind of behavior by the United States and by Europe has had a direct economic impact and it will affect development and it will affect GDP growth. It will affect Russia's capacity to grow. So China wants to avoid all of that, first of all. And as the author said, China has not laid out any specifics, right? We knew, we were suspicious about, but we knew that Russia had been making overtures to the United States and the West saying, we are not happy about what's happening with the NATO encroachment, with the way that Ukraine is being interfered upon and its threat to our national security interests. You must talk to us or there will be consequences. That was said many, many, many times. China has never said any such thing about Taiwan other than if something were to happen, China would, of course, do what is necessary. But I think what ends up happening with Taiwan, it's just like all questions when it comes to China. China is always scapegoated as the principal problem rather than the United States and rather than the aggressors, the imperialists who are interfering in the affairs of Taiwan. They have no, why is the U.S. arming and funding and, and militarizing Taiwan? It has absolutely no other purpose than to provoke China. But yet we always hear China being talked about in relation to Taiwan as the aggressor, right? So it's this constant mismatching. It's this constant projecting that goes on and on and on to make us believe that China is really the one at fault here. But I just want to show you something that you all might find very interesting. And that is just a simple Google search, okay? So if you look at the, the scope, right, if you want to know the scope of just how much or how uh, frequently the United States is militarizing Taiwan and playing dangerous provocations with China in Taiwan, all you have to do is a simple Google search. All I did, and I'll show you it, all I did was say, was type in the words, I believe it was... Taiwan U.S. weapons. Other than three words, not a very specific search. The first thing that comes up is from a Defense Department media site, the Defense News, a literal Pentagon outlet. Documents reveal a $14 billion backlog in U.S. defense transfers to Taiwan. So there's a... It, there's so much going to Taiwan, so many weapons going to Taiwan, that there is a $14 billion backlog that hasn't even been fulfilled yet. That is how just egregious and how expansive the U.S.'s aims are. And then you can just scroll down to the next article. In 2019, State Department authorized $2.2 billion in sales of weapons to Taiwan that included blah, 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 tanks and all that. So you can go to the Wikipedia and see 
the whole list of arms sales to Taiwan. But, you know, every headline, April 6th, U.S. approves $95 million worth of Patriot weapons in support for Taiwan. February 8, 2022, U.S. approves $100 million arms sales to Taiwan. So it goes on and on and on. On <laughs> Here we go again. February 8th again. Okay, so that's the same $100 million. But this is something that happens every year. Every year, each U.S. president commits somewhere between a half a billion dollars to billions of dollars in arms sales. Uh, Trump, I think it was somewhere uh, above five billion U.S. dollars worth of arms sales. So that's how extensive it is. That that's all you need to do is a simple Google search. There's a backlog of weapons ready to go to Taiwan worth fourteen billion dollars, right? So we were, so a lot of people went up in arms about the transfer forty billion U.S. dollars in one kind of sitting, right? In in one piece of legislation that the Democrats passed wholesale without any sort of conflict, right? They just did it. They all approved it. This has been happening with Taiwan every single year leading up to very similar amounts of expenditures. Of course, there has not been a single arms transfer to that degree because the United States has had to take a position of strategic ambiguity, unlike with Russia and Ukraine, where the U.S.'s role is obviously to fortify Ukraine, to obviously to prolong the war antagonistically against Russia, right? The U.S. is on the opposing side. The U.S. has made it very clear. It is not on the side of peace. It's not on the side of negotiations or neutrality. No, it's on the side of militarizing Ukraine to the point where it can prolong the war. And of course, $40 billion worth of military weaponry, which isn't all old weapons anymore, according to our friend Scott Ritter. It's actually a lot of new weaponry, which can, right, uh, can kind of sustain warfare. The weapons to Taiwan are a little different, but nonetheless, it is a major provocation. And Joe Biden stating that he is committed to, right, a military conflict with China over Taiwan, should the correct circumstances warrant it, is cause for concern. And there's another, the last piece on this that I want to say is that there was another sort of indication within this month that should give us pause about the U.S.'s intentions, that the U.S. is not in good faith following the one China policy, is seeking to use Taiwan as a launch pad for war with China, and it can, does not get any clearer. And I've, I've shown you other sources, right, from the Rand Corporation, et cetera, where the conversation about war with China is actually quite active, right, within the Pentagon, within the U.S. foreign policy establishment. This isn't something that's just joked about. It's not something that's just talked about flippantly. No, it's talked about very seriously. And recently... There was uh, May 16th on Meet the Press. There was an event, and I'm not going to play you the clip because honestly, I'm not putting this filth on my YouTube. But I will show you at least that it happened in our friend Caitlin Johnstone, good anti war independent journalist. She wrote about it and she reported, right? And this was on May 15th, actually. So on May 15th, on Meet the Press, 
She says that the Pentagon-funded think tank stimulates war with China on NBC. NBC's Meet the Press just aired a freakish segment, which the influential narrative management firm Center for a New American Security ran war games simulating a hot war with China. And as you see here, it's over Taiwan, right? They're talking about a possible conflict with China. So that aired on NBC's Meet the Press, a literal war game simulation from a Pentagon-funded think tank, the Center for a New American Security. So this came just a little less than two weeks before the Biden administration made their latest comments. He made his latest comments on why the how the United States would support Taiwan militarily and would intervene directly should there be a war between China and Taiwan over the whole issue of reunification. Now, let me show you just what Caitlin Johnstone means when she is talking about Center for New American Security. So Center for New American Security, I don't know if you all know, I, I wrote about this for CGTN. People like Michael Gordon, Peter Sanger, there are really lucrative journalists who actually work as fellows for this uh, think tank. And Michael Gordon, you may remember, and I think it was 2002, where he actually co-authored the article which stated in the New York Times that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. It was literally the intelligence agencies using the New York Times as its conduit to promote this narrative and build the case for the U.S.'s invasion, and it worked. And so that is who Michael Gordon is, and that is who the Center for New American Security is. They are literally, as Caitlin Johnson said, narrative management for the Pentagon and for the war machine. So here is its supporters. So if you look here, you can just write to the website, just go to their about and look at their supporters. And so this is from 2020 to 2021. And you can see who the top $500,000 and above. Okay, so we don't actually know how much, but we do know that it's $500,000 and above coming from Northrop Grumman Systems Corporation, one of the top five military contractors on this planet and the U.S. Department of Defense, and then all the other kind of um, offshoots there of uh, the DOD, the Pentagon. So that is who this firm is, uh, that is who is funding this firm, this uh, think tank. And so war game simulations on it, meet the press, sounds like an effort to normalize war with China over this issue of Taiwan. It's very dangerous. Uh, I'll probably have somebody on this show soon, as soon as I can, to talk about the politics of Taiwan and give a better and more robust history. But what you really need to know right now is that the United States is arming Taiwan to the teeth as best that it can and as much as it wants in order to provoke China. And then the Biden administration is showing its hand, saying that, yeah, no, strategic ambiguity and following the one China policy, that's not really the case, right? What we're seeing is an escalation in not just a new Cold War, but the rudiments of what comes beyond a new Cold War, right? An actual hot war, which if you think that the Russia-Ukraine conflict has been a monumental watershed moment and a very dangerous escalation instigated by the United States, just wait until what would happen when it comes to Taiwan and when it comes to China, because that kind of conflict 
and U.S. involvement in it would be absolutely disastrous to by many more degrees, many more degrees, because China's role economically, uh, the U.S.'s uh, 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 view of China, all of these factors, right, laying at the roots of this, the U.S., right, is building up. And I think the U.S. is seeing, the U.S. is seeing Russia and Ukraine not just as a one-pronged war, it is seeing it as a two-way war, right, a multi uh, sort of targeted war. It's not just that Russia. It's not just let's capsize Russia's economy. Let's destroy Russia. Let's try to weaken its government. It's also about China. That's why they keep talking about Taiwan and China in relationship to this conflict, because they want to build up toward the possibilities of a war with China, no matter how suicidal that is. And that's because of the forces behind the Center for New American Security. I had Michael Hudson on and he said Wall Street was not briefed about the United States' role and how it would instigate this Ukraine crisis. It was not briefed on the economic measures, the economic warfare that it would take. And we should understand the U.S.'s behavior toward China as very similar, right? The economic impact of a war with China would be so monumental that it would be hard to believe that a lot of the forces within the capitalist class would just outright support it. A lot of forces on Wall Street, not to be confused with Wall Street being in collusion, this isn't Matt Stoller's strange, unverified, completely unreasonable and uh, a factless conclusion that Wall Street and China are in cahoots. No, this is just Wall Street wanting to protect investments around the world, wanting a stable, relatively stable economic, economic landscape. Wall Street has no problems with wars. It's when those wars start to affect the global economy in a way that will bounce back at Wall Street. That is when Wall Street and these investors are going to oppose it, right? Or at least they're not going to just jump on board. They're going to hedge their bets. They're going to uh, look at what is the best possible scenario for them and for their super profits. That doesn't make them heroes. It just means that China's role in the global economy is so of a, is of such import that it is hard to believe that a lot of forces seeking to continue their onslaught of super exploitation on the planet are just going to go wholesale in on a hot war with China because. Well, a hot war with China not only could mean annihilation of humanity through nuclear exchange, but it could also mean an economic collapse that Wall Street can't really get out of, right? Wall Street doesn't want a revolution on its hands, right? It doesn't want some kind of uh, uprising on its hands. It doesn't want, it doesn't even want what's happening right now. It doesn't want this incredible inflation. It doesn't want this uh, stagnation that is being caused and this move toward collapse that's being caused with the Russia-Ukraine crisis. It doesn't want that because that's not good for, as Michael Hudson said again, right, because I just interviewed him, right? it's not good for the rentier class. They want to make profits in their sleep. They don't, they don't want to be awake wondering if a war is going to uh, destroy all of their financialized investments because just, there just isn't a terrain to, to make them anymore. So 
And this also, we have to understand capitalism as a contradiction. This also should be factored in. This doesn't mean that Wall Street's for peace. This doesn't mean that Wall Street is in coups with China. Actually, Wall Street is fueling the military industrial complex, which is driving this. Wall Street is making heavy investments, heavy bets on the military industrial complex. And Wall Street has a very negative view of China. Just look at what George Soros, people like George Soros say. Very negative opinion on China. They would love to see China be embattled in some kind of conflict, just not one that will affect them. So that's the key difference here between Wall Street and cahoots with China, that ridiculous argument, versus the real political and economic landscape that we live in, which requires a dialectical anal materialist analysis of the situation, which points to a very contradictory, a very problematic kind of scenario uh, for the economic forces of capitalism and capital and finance capital. But nonetheless, that's what's happening with Taiwan. That's the stakes. That's where we're at. It's a very dangerous situation. And we have to be uh, really aware of this and be sure to oppose it and cover it with just as much fervor as the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Everyone is on board with the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And we, we should be following it. It's one of the most important moments in the world situation right now. So, of course, I'm not saying cover it less. But if there's a neglect of this other side, if there's a neglect of this huge portion of the overall puzzle, this huge piece of the overall puzzle that is imperialism, then we're doing a disservice. And I've noticed, I don't know about you all, but I've noticed that China has gone on the back burner as if the United States is not building up the case for war. And as I've shown, they really are building up the case for war and they're really seeking to provoke China. So I'm going to move on, though. Like the stream. Subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notifications bell while you're here. Uh, be sure also to uh, consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. About three subscribers away for the month uh, for my monthly goal. And then on Patreon, you can see that my overall goal, which I'm about $100 away per month from, is about 3000 per month. So you all can support me on Patreon, help me get there. Or you can support me in the other ways in the links in the description. All right. So I want to talk about Uvalde a bit. And I want to talk about it because I tweeted something that just came to me last night. I was just I, I was getting sick of the discourse. So I don't know about you all, but the gun control discourse is nauseating. The gun debate in the United States is absolutely nauseating. It's completely depoliticized, decontextualized. There's no talk about history. It's all about, okay, are we with the Democrats on gun control or are we with the GOP on just guns for everyone? Are we with the gun lobby spending $15 million plus to get all these guns onto the streets, to get all these guns into people's homes, to stoke the militarization of society? Or with the Democrats who say they're opposed to that, but actually just fuel war and fuel militarization both at home and abroad, just in other ways. But we don't get the, the discourse. And I was thinking about this after I was on Ryan Knight's and uh, Rob Menudez, their podcast on Ruli, on Colin. And I was thinking about this because we talked about this for the first 10, 20 minutes of the podcast, this issue of Avalde and what it says, what it means, what's causing it. And for me, you know, I, I actually had stopped paying attention because personally, I don't think 
And politically, I don't think this is going anywhere. I don't think that there's a mass movement to organize around that will even that will get anything that we want out of this, right? So we need to be advocating, and I said this on the podcast, for things like community control of the police. And we need to be looking at options for how to build working class power in order to develop real measures that will demilitarize society, but in a way that doesn't leave people vulnerable to the state, because there is a class war going on. And I don't know if you remember, if you all remember from history, but usually the case is, is that gun control legislation has generally just targeted uh, organizations like the Black Panther Party and black people in rebellion against things like slavery. That's what gun control is really targeted. And if you all might remember, too, that the Second Amendment, do read Roxanne dunbar Ortiz's book, Loaded, on this issue, where she talks about how the Second Amendment is rooted in the arming of colonial settler militias to uh, uproot indigenous people from their lands and also put down slave rebellions. And, of course, the rebellions that came through uprooting indigenous people from their land. So that's where all the guns were needed. And that those roots have never gone away. They're still just as sordid. They're still just as powerful in influencing the politics and social life in the United States. So it has to be put into the conversation. However, I want to pull up a tweet because I think this tweet, uh, my tweet that I wrote on this issue actually kind of sums up my thoughts on Ovalde. And then I want to talk because I want to react to what people have been talking about a lot. And that is the behavior of the cops because the videos have come out, right, of the police. They were out there for a long time, not doing anything. But actually what they were doing is they're actually preventing parents who are desperately trying to get their children out. They're standing around and then they changed their narrative like a dozen times, right? The police changed their narrative a dozen times about what they were doing and their behavior. But overall, the conclusion is for many people, most people is that, yeah, the police really neglected the people in this situation, allowed the massacre to happen and get as bad as it did. And so a lot of people are pointing at them as one of the principal culprits for this and rightfully so. So I'm going to share this tweet, though, because I want to show you just kind of these are my thoughts on the situation. And then I want to open it up to question questions. So. And I do believe and so people are saying, yeah, 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 you know, definitely ban assault rivals. I'm not against that. I am for that. Now, do I think that we have a regulatory apparatus that can actually do such a thing? Not sure about that. Do I believe that we live in a system where weapons manufacturers and big corporations are not just going to uh, override and overrule any kind of regulation like that. Like, I don't know what mechanism the United States has left. All of the austerity and neoliberalism has gutted any kind of capacity for public action. So I don't know how that even occurs. And I don't know how it just doesn't turn into some kind of black market situation, which the U.S. is very good at moving toward, right? The U.S. is very good at turning open wars into proxy wars and vice versa. And I think that this is an open war, an open domestic war that we're seeing that all of these shootings point to a crumbling. And so I, a crumbling of the empire. And so I wrote 
on Twitter that Malcolm X said that the chickens are coming home to roost. And you may remember that he said this in the wake of John F. Kennedy's assassination. And that John F. Kennedy was assassinated after the Bay of Pigs invasion not too long afterward. And there was also there was just a lot of heat that real people, real activists like Malcolm X were focusing on. That, you know, John F. Kennedy, he was, there are some people who say that he had a little bit more of a peace orientation, but nonetheless, the Bay of Pigs was a disaster, this attempt to overthrow the Cuban government. John F. Kennedy was seen as somebody who was a principal force behind it. It was a failure. There was a lot of internal strife between him and the CIA. There's a lot of speculation that that's why the CIA, often because of Kennedy's anger toward the CIA, but nonetheless... Malcolm X said the chickens are coming home to roost as a way to say, well, the violence and the war that you impose upon others eventually boomerangs back to you. That's what he meant. And Martin Luther King Jr. said, after seeing all the poverty and the uprisings of black people in the cities, after finally kind of breaking with the Democratic Party over the issue of Vietnam and the U.S. invasion of Vietnam, Martin Luther King said that the bombs dropped abroad, explode at home and so what that means is very similar to the chickens coming home to roost it means that a nation a country an imperialist power at war with the world will see those bombs exploding not just abroad but they will come back home to cause severe problems like the uprisings that occurred uh, led by black people in the cities because of rampant poverty and discrimination and police violence like uh, all of the various issues, the class struggles, right? That is what Martin Luther King Jr. meant. And I said they're right. And that mass shootings are an outgrowth of a militarized and alienated society where violence is a feature of policy at every single level. And what I mean by that, right? Because I want to elaborate what I mean by that. Is that every single policy that the U.S. enforces, economic, political, social, you name it, under this neoliberal imperialist regime, this kind of neocon wet dream, this nightmare, you not only have trillions of dollars invested in war, the expansion of warfare all across the world now leading in to what is and can be considered uh, a great power, a, so, a, a possible third world war. Although I want to shout out Roderick Day, who I consider a comrade. His work is great. He did have a just little exchange with me that I agreed with where he said calling it a third world war is maybe not accurate because the first couple of world wars were inter-class wars were about, uh, they were about, um, the capitalist powers kind of dividing the world among themselves in, in conflict with each other. So China being socialist and the target of the U.S.'s great power competition being countries that are on a different path, may, it may not be accurate to call it a third world war. So I agree with that. And I'll say that, yeah, there is a great uh, power confrontation coming. There is a, a global confrontation, right, coming that has you know, that has been spurred by this incredible investment in war, this endless war policy. So you cannot spend trillions of dollars on war without that seeping into every part of society. 
So you have traumatized vets going into police departments, going into law enforcement, right? It's one of the principal kind of uh, pipelines for former U.S. military personnel. They go into police departments. Uh, You have the media, the corporate media, Hollywood. I mean, oh my God, I don't know if you, it's just everywhere. You have thousands of movies, television shows, all of the mass media, the print media. They're all promoting war. They're all promoting violence, just violence abroad, violence against the quote unquote enemy. And we're supposed to believe that doesn't have an impact on the psyche of the U.S. population, but it does. It normalizes war. Even when there's war fatigue, there isn't a, there isn't any tiring over the possibility of killing people abroad and what it means. There's such a normalization of it and desensitization of it that really there's a numbing effect. I think there's been a mass numbing effect to just how destructive U.S. wars and all of its military ventures and what they create. But then you also have in the United States the militarization of this society. And this goes beyond just guns flooding into homes, right? This goes beyond the assault rifles and the military weaponry that Americans, people in the United States buy like, I don't know, like like toys. Like they're just buying them up, right? The U.S. is really the only place in the world where this happens on such a mass scale. But it goes beyond that. It's the mass surveillance. It's the police everywhere militarized themselves, right? The 1033 program is providing billions of dollars worth of Pentagon weaponry to police departments to then patrol the streets against working class people, against black people to protect private property. You have a militarized society. Everything is militarized too. Every part of it, even on the job, right? How much investment are corporations making in security firms? I was just talking with uh, my wife, who's a nurse, and her family, uh, one of her family members was a midwife too, just talking about how hospitals are investing in all this private security uh, technology, surveillance technology, in order to not only streamline labor, but to essentially surveil patients and, and workers, right? That like that. That's a real phenomenon. And of course, after the war on terror was declared, the surveillance just astronomically increased to include all of our data and all of our technology that we use for communication. That data is being collected and continues to be collected uh, through uh, legislative mandates like the Patriot Act. So, you know, this militarization of everything, of journalism, right? Julian Assange. And basically anyone who speaks out against the narrative is censored in some way. And Julian Assange, right, he's in danger of being extradited. And I think that's very soon. So definitely support any effort to to free Julian Assange and, and, and get on board with that. But the point is, is that his case alone shows the militarization of journalism. All right. And that and that includes how the corporate media is basically just stenographers for war they have a lot of blood on their hands i mean you can't just promote war 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 all the time without people uh, ingesting that and being conditioned by that and then possibly acting on it now of course right there's a lot of other factors and there are some other uh, things that 
get a lot more attention in the corporate media, right? We're always hearing about mental health, right? The mental health of the person, right? And that that's not untrue, but as a therapist, I take issue with it to a lot of degree because I don't think mental health is, I think it's a spurious connection. I think it's something that could correlate in some ways and could be a factor, but I never think it's the principal factor, right? Because we should be thinking of mental health not as just some kind of biological disease, but as something that is caused by traumatic stress and just living in the United States is alienated, neoliberal, gutted society, one that is highly alienating for most people, right? Highly alienating, highly isolating. There's a lot of social isolation going around, and it was before COVID-19 that has only, of course, grown exponentially since COVID-19, but there's a lot of alienation already, a lot of broken social bond, bonds, a lot of broken social solidarity because of the ways in which the imperialists have gutted everything, financialized everything, turned public sec- the public sector into dust, got rid of public spaces, got rid of unions are barely existing, right? There's not a lot of places for people to go, not just to seek help, but to also seek places to give them purpose because a lot of our labor is becoming redundant. It's changing service, tech, all of that changes the ways in which our labor is even valued, right? It goes from exploitation to even super exploitation. And uh, the socialization of labor is kind of inverting itself to where a lot of workers are like just working on their own now, whether they're working from home, like COVID-19, everyone's working from home, but also just a lot of these gig economy jobs, right? So there's a lot of social isolation, the massive expansion of prisons, not just the police, but the prisons, the how, how people, hundreds of thousands of people over the course of years have been sent to solitary confinement, a form of torture, and uh, experienced that for some people have experienced that for decades long. I mean, there are people, especially political prisoners, that have experienced isolation to such a degree in solitary confinement within prisons for 40 years that, I mean, two weeks, more than two weeks is shown to have an extreme traumatic impact on the body and on the mind. It is one of the highest forms of traumatic stress that you, social, uh, sensory deprivation is one of the highest forms of traumatic stress and causes the most problems, elevates anything. I mean, for me, it's anything that you can think of, right? That causes traumatic stress. You should elevate that when you are deprived of sensory stimulation, touch, communication, all of it. So, and that's what Julian Assange has been experiencing for years himself. So what I'm trying to say here, right, to, to kind of make a long story short, is that we are witnessing, I think, the decay of an empire. And with that has come the decay of social solidarity. And with that has come the militarization of everything. And with that has come the complete, I think, ignoring and uh, kind of brushing under the rug of the foundations of the United States and racist violence, racist state violence, and of course, capitalist state violence. And that All of that has led to the scenario where there are people who are turning the guns inward. I I mean, and from a mental health perspective, suicide and homicide kind of have similar 
uh, sources, right? Getting to the point where you need to end something, end life. Oftentimes, people who are committing homicide believe that their life is ending as well. So there's a lot here. And this isn't even to mention the things that I can't really get into as much because I just don't know. But I do know entrapment is a thing. And I do know that the United States government has a history of sponsoring terrorism. And I do believe that we should be probing the United States government on the issue of mass shootings as well. I'm just going to put that out there. I have to put that out there because I can't sit here as someone who considers those journalists or an analyst and say that the United States government has no hand in what has been a phenomenon, especially since 2005, of course, when the assault rifle ban was allowed to expire. Of course, things got much worse then. But since 1980, we can trace just a big pattern where these mass shootings have increased with the advent of neoliberalism, with the advent of the so-called end of history, post-Soviet Union. There's so many factors here, but they all have to be considered. And so for me, when I hear about the Uvalde police and what they did, I am not surprised. Of course, it's disgusting, right? It's disgusting to hear about what the Uvalde police did or what they did not do to ensure that the damage was less than what happened, right? You had almost 20 people killed, I think 19 people killed because the police just sat there with their weapon. I mean, they had, they were had weapons themselves. And now my opinion is that if they had done anything, they might have actually made the situation worse. They might not have saved anybody and they might have killed more people because I, the police are organized to protect property, to protect the rich, to protect capital. And they have a long track record of killing, what, 1,000 people per year, 200 to 300 black people per year. I mean, they don't have a good track record of protecting people. In fact, most people who have any kind of class orientation or any kind of relationship with the police outside of the wealthy kind of see the cops as antagonistic force, especially at this point where something like defund the police and the Black Lives Matter movement and all of that has taken storm, that really just harnessed on what were already existing feelings about the police. This is, I mean, look at Rodney King in the 1990s, the uprising in the 1960s. I, I mean, this isn't something new here. The police have not necessarily been this force for good, right? The war on drugs, all of that didn't really create a sense of uh, fuzziness around the police. It's just that we had a lot of propaganda, a lot of propaganda telling us that the police were amazing and incredible because there were so many more on the streets, weaponized and militarized to meet the objectives of the ruling class in the neoliberal era through the war on drugs and war on crime and, and all of it. War on immigration, right? I mean, it was a fucking border patrol officer that killed the, the guy that was, you know, committing the massacre. That's just how twisted the society is. And I think what we're witnessing is the decay of U.S. imperialism. It's the decay of U.S. imperialism. And the, the, where you see it crumbling most visibly for us as people in the United States is in the ways in which not only the political legitimacy of the United States is being constantly questioned, the disdain for Biden, the Biden administration, but the disdain for any administration continues to grow. The Trump administration had a really hard time to... Honestly, I don't think he actually had it as hard as Biden has it right now, but different contexts, different situations. But nonetheless, uh, 
it seems like each subsequent administration after the Obama hangover has had a hard time with its legitimacy. And so you have that and then you have the economic catastrophe and the crises and this like slow rolling collapse that seems to be accelerating. And then you have the militarization, the military, the wars, the endless wars. I mean, this is an unmitigated disaster. And U.S. imperialism has no solutions and no options, right? It doesn't have the capacity to change things. People who are begging the Democrats to give them Medicare for all, begging any of these politicians, any of these forces for anything, right, are just wasting their time. What we need to do is build a movement strong enough to make real demands and then act upon them, force them. And if they can't be forced, which I don't think they can be, I don't think the imperialists are going to say, okay, we're going to reverse the tide of austerity. We're going to reverse the tide of militarization. No, I'm not going to do that. This isn't there. The stage of capitalism that we are in is a terminal one. It is the highest, in my opinion, the highest stage of imperialism, right? The most advanced stage of imperialism. And in that stage is a lot of contradictions, which imperialism just doesn't have any resolution to. And they're not going, I don't think they're going to be pressured out of them. But we have to build a positive force that, and a, a powerful force that can prove that contradiction in real time on the ground to give a boost to any kind of popular revolt that is likely to occur in the future, right? I was just talking right to people about this. A lot of people are feeling like anyone who pays attention to politics, even just a little, feels like we're on a pressure cooker. And so it behooves us to get prepared for that and to begin to develop the rudiments of organization that can prepare for that. So I'm going to conclude there with the remarks about the issues, okay, about Evalde. I don't really have much else to say other than that and about Biden and Taiwan. But I do want to get into any questions that you may have. I see a super chat. So if you have a, want to super chat the question, that would help me a lot because <laughs> I don't have to go all the way back in the chat. Uh, but as you know, you're here, continue to like the stream, subscribe to the channel, hit the notifications bell, make sure you're doing that. I don't know if it'll always work, but hit the notifications bell anyway. And uh, hopefully that can notify you when I'm on. And then uh, be sure if you're able to subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. Help me meet my monthly goal of about three more subscribers. I haven't been keeping really hard count, but three more. And uh, for the month, so the month is only a couple days long now. And then, you know, it, help, it helps with my overall goal, about $100 more per month before I stop asking. <laughs> this is what I want. So anyway, I'm going to go to the super chat question first, and then uh, I'll get to other questions afterward. I can stay on for another about 15 minutes, maybe, give or take. So can you talk a little bit about semiconductors in Taiwan? People talk like they're the only source, but what about mainland China? So I think Taiwan has a little bit, it was a more advanced semiconductor industry than China. Uh, China has actually accelerated its production of semiconductors of late. Uh, you know, what's interesting about this is that the 
Taiwan and China have deep economic ties. They're not they're not economic economically sanctioning each other, right? There's that's not happening. So the United States has attempted to actually restrain China's capacity to build the semiconductor industry through sanctions of various kinds. So what I can say about this is I'm, this is not my specialty tech, but there is right an attempt to try to get Taiwan to decouple its semiconductor industry from Taiwan so that that will hurt China. And China has made moves to try to mitigate that and produce their own semiconductor chips so that they can continue to accelerate their high-tech industry without having to rely on others. But I don't think China is there yet. And Taiwan has had that strategic advantage for a bit now. Um, but but that's what I'll say on that. Um, it's a very good question. And I think uh, one that you know we should continue to study. Actually, it would be interesting. I know Carl Zah has done a lot on uh, the tech side of this, right? That uh, might be very interesting to talk about. Um, so let's see. Any other questions? Any other questions? Okay, here we go. Big teal. Hey, so I'm um, sorry. I, I was saying hello to people in the past, but uh, I, don't, I think I missed you. So uh, hello, hello. And you said, I've wondered how much of a separatist movement in the current Taiwan ruling party mobilizing uh, is mobilizing. Okay, so how much of a separatist movement is the Taiwan ruling party mobilizing? Is it to win elections in Taiwan and mainland political power? Or are they legally separating? So the way that the DPP, in my understanding, is operating uh, through separatism is not necessarily mainland because, first of all, they're not they they aren't they aren't that they aren't a force that could be considered like a color revolutionary force that would to overtake the people's republic of china i i don't think even they think such a thing but their adversarial position toward china is more driven on ambitions for so-called independence quote unquote now it's hard to understand and know what they mean by that because I don't think that the DPP is independent enough to really concoct a real vision for what that is. And I do think that the DPP is really just a political arm of U.S. policy at this point that the United States has thrown all of its weight with the DPP and has essentially been successful in mobilizing it to take more and more hostile uh, positions toward mainland China and to uh, really escalate its efforts to achieve some kind of political independence and and ultimately a so-called a nation state, some kind of independent state. And so a lot of that has to do with the internal workings, right? They are the ruling party. They have been successful in spreading just insane propaganda across the across Taiwan. I've had influence ideologically, and you know there is a big conflict between them and the KMT and the other parties, right, about this issue of what the status quo should be. 
And still, you have a lot of people in Taiwan favoring the status quo. But what's happening because of the ruling party's policies, you have a you have like I mean, you have like a book burning policy in Taiwan right now, where the DPP has tried to erase and is attempting to erase from schools the history of the People's Republic of China, the history of the revolution. Right? They're trying to build almost kind of like a a case. Similar to how the United States has manipulated its textbooks to build this case that independence from Britain was some kind of progressive force and you know whitewash and sanitize racism and slavery and all of that. Taiwan in its own way, the DPP in its own way, is trying to erase the memory of China, the one China policy of uh, the fact that despite uh, all, all the differences and really irreconcilable differences that led to the revolution, the KMT and the CPC worked together for a little bit, right? To try to get China to be an independent country, to, to help China be uh, a stable force, independent of foreign imperialism. And while, of course, the KMT uh, did a lot of things that we would not necessarily uh, adhere to or support and they should be content for all of their crimes nonetheless the kmt is actually the party that pushes the status quo the most uh, and doesn't push for some kind of independent state so politically it really is the dpp it really is an effort to build a a, a case for so-called quote-unquote independence and for taiwan to not just be a, a kind of independent entity, a self-ruling entity that's part of what is called China, that's part of a China as a civilization, as a country, but actually uh, a state that will not just be recognized as the rightful China like Taiwan was from 19, what, um, what was it, 1945 to 71, but actually be a country that's represented at the United Nations as Taiwan and not China. And that's a, that's a huge deal. And, and it's, it's very dangerous and it's what is ideologically kind of fueling i think uh the this proxy war that the u.s is waging uh that's that's who they're supporting that's how the united states is is getting things done and militarizing the island is is through uh, uh the dpp's just callous subservience to to the united states and to uh, the u.s administration whether it's biden trump or whoever so let's see if there's any other questions. Any other questions? Um, let's see. So thank you again, Andrew, for the super chat. I don't see any other super chats here. Um, let's see. Please do. If you had a question, you can retype it at the bottom. That would be amazing. But I don't think there are any other questions for tonight. Uh, let's see. Any other questions? Any other questions? How are y'all doing? I've been I've been having a hard time getting on, you know, uh, motivation. You know, sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I can juggle all of this. I've been writing. I've been trying to trying to continue to have my writing be a solid part of what I do because it's honestly what I think I'm better at, and I like it. I like it a little bit more. Uh, but I've been, you know, I do this because I know it's valuable to, 
Uh, so I don't see any other questions here. But yeah, I've been feeling like, damn. Uh, it says there are a few questions at the bottom. Uh, okay, let's see. Oh, here we go. All right, so I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to get on my thing. All right, I see where, where, where. There you are. All right, so where? Thanks for coming. Do you have any opinion on how elections in Colombia might play out tomorrow? Ooh, I don't know. I honestly have not been following that. I'm actually looking forward. I know there are some journalists out there. Uh, I'll probably be looking for Ben Norton's analysis too because I know he follows Latin America pretty closely. But no, I haven't been following Colombia. I know that there is kind of a possibility that a semi, I think there's like a semi-left candidate. I wouldn't, I don't know if they're a left, le you know, like a left-wing force per se, but uh, they certainly would mark a break, I think, from Colombia's, I guess, neo-colonial uh, relationship with the United States in some ways. But I don't think we see any kind of like Bolivarian kind of force, a force that would also oppose imperialism and oppose the... Um, oppose the attacks on the progressive countries. So I don't know if we'll see that, but that was a great question. But unfortunately, I can't answer that one because I haven't been able to follow it as close as I would like. But um, how soon do you see these events unrolling? The U.S. provoked Russia and Ukraine. Do you have a personal belief timeline for China and Taiwan? Good question. So for me, with China and Taiwan, I don't see a timeline. I mean, I think a lot of this Despite the U.S.'s military provocations, I think a lot of this will depend on China and Taiwan's own economic and political development. I do think that China will become more assertive politically. I don't think China is going to like militarily provoke. But as China gains confidence, as China moves out of the last vestiges of underdevelopment, as it builds these immense trade networks through things like the Belt and Road Initiative, as China becomes more of a high-tech power, and as China moves toward its goal of becoming a modern socialist country by 2050, I cannot imagine that China is not going to diplomatically try to pursue reunification on terms that are beneficial for both, right? I, I think that's very realistic, and I think that could happen. What is it, 2022 right now? So I, I think that could happen within the next 15, 20 years, right, where that is pursued. However, because of U.S. provocations, I, I, I make that long timeline because I think politics in Taiwan, right, and how the U.S. is trying to manipulate them are really the problem here and will cause delays, will cause any kind, will cause disruptions in any kind of efforts, efforts to talk about what reunification could look like and unfortunately sentiment for quote-unquote independence is growing even though the status quo is still the vast majority of people wanting it uh, the people who are saying they want the status quo but move toward independence and the people who are saying well let's do independence now that segment of the population is growing in taiwan because of the u.s's interference and because of the dpp's influence so I mean, we're talking about a complicated situation. And so I would put it at like 15, 20 years where maybe something will happen. And, and we know what will happen with China. We know that short of the U.S. causing some kind of global confrontation between the U.S. and China, China's development trajectory is pretty clear. And thus, that's what I'm going off of. And it's also clear how Taiwan's development trajectory politically is going. 
but I but I do think that what we will probably see before any kind of attempts at reunification is some kind of break and shift in U.S. policy towards China. It looks like that shift, that break, will come with a dangerous confrontation against China. And that's what we really, I think, have to be concerned about because it will influence this question too. It's just that it probably will come sooner because I don't think we're going to see any kind of real huge shift from China or Taiwan on this question within the next eight years. And I think within the next eight years, we're going to see China's economy move toward a GDP that is larger than the United States is, which we could see as almost like a deadline for whether we're going to actually see the kind of confrontation that I fear. I do fear. I do have fear about that. Although it's a fear that I think is balanced out by the objective political and Iowa situation. So I'm not worried necessarily that there's going to be nukes dropped tomorrow or nukes dropped in 2030. But I do think that the impetus for such a dangerous confrontation led by the United States will come at that juncture because the hysteria among capital and the capitalist class will reach a fever pitch at that time. So it will. So thanks for the question. That was good. Um, and so thanks also, uh, Lima Hanna, for the question and then saying that the socialist candidate may win. And it may be the first time in Columbia history a left-wing president may be elected. Yeah, I think so. I don't think that socialist candidate has a great foreign policy, but a great like regional policy. But nonetheless, at least that's what I remember hearing. But let's see. Let's see what happens. It would be incredible. So I think, I don't know if there's any other questions. Uh, here we go. Why did the EU acquiesce to U.S. demands to stop oil trade with Russia, expand NATO, etc.? Most Europeans don't want confrontation. Well, Anna... <laughs> I think we have to look at history. The, the Europe really became a junior partner of the United States after the Second World War. It had been a process that was developing because what the world wars were, were intercapitalist conflicts. They were wars of imperialist possession or dispossession if we look at the colonial world. But what the Second World War did, what culminated, after that was a fi world financial system led by the United States, which indebted Europe to the United States. So the United States used finance capital, as Michael Hudson said in my interview, to basically indebt Europe and begin gutting Europe through austerity and through this international financial system that pegged everything to the dollar. Of course, you had the formation of the EU, which was kind of like a semi-break, but really almost like an emulation of the dollar system, which didn't break the 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 stranglehold of finance capital so that pressure has been there that pressure to gut europe as a, a, a relatively robust social welfare system up until the last several decades right to gut all of that to get rid of that public sector which was born from the fruits of labor struggle class struggle and so that international financial system has led to Europe politically more and more so becoming acquiescent, becoming sort of uh, this uh, weak, weaker and weaker junior partner to the United States. And so at this stage, Europe and these leaders in the EU, they 
have very little independence from U.S. foreign policy. Very little. I mean, look at NATO. Look at how NATO has encapsulated virtually all of these EU countries. That is the U.S.'s influence just at work. And so that, I think, is what's going on here, is that it doesn't matter really what Europeans want, what like people who live in Europe want. I think that there's probably a lot of people in Europe, even if they I know that anti-Russia sentiment has gone way up since Russiagate and since Trump and a lot of the kind of like elite elitist Europeans. Right. But I think a lot of people would also probably say that Russia and Europe's partnership has been beneficial in some way if they know anything at all about it. And so it is a very dangerous and I think. A, a, a very important development to follow this idea that Europe is so willing to commit economic suicide on behest of the United States that it really does indicate that Europe does not have any political or strategic or economic independence from U.S. finance capital. That, you, that finance capital in the United States is calling the shots and the military industrial complex is calling the shots, especially here because even U.S. finance capital wasn't really briefed on like, hey, this is going to happen. It might have send shockwaves to the world economy. Get ready. We'll support you. That didn't really happen. And so this is the contradictions of capitalism at work, that it's always about competition, even when there's so much monopoly. That competition and monopoly, they feed off of each other under capitalism. And we're seeing that, I think, really clearly and uh, with real consequences in the in the Ukraine crisis. So that was a great question. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm going to get to uh, Trevon, and then I'll get to Lee Mahana's question. I think I might leave it there. So was the pivot to Asia by the U.S. a weak one? Well, I mean... <laughs> I guess for me, how I view the pivot to Asia, I mean, I, of course, I view it as a dangerous policy. I view it as one that is very expansive, right? So it's, a, it's like the definition of powerful and weak. Like, what is that for us here? If we look at this from, I guess, a surface level perspective, no, it's not weak. It's, right, half of the military budget. It's half of the Navy. It's, right, it's hundreds of military bases. It's, Right. It's like new military alliances like AUKUS. It's the Quad. It's uh, uh, Obama's, you know, escalation of arms sales to all of these countries, to like the entire Asia Pacific. It's like sailing warships through the South China Sea. I mean, if we look at it like that, oh, it's powerful. Right. It's big. It's strong. It's big. It, it's, it's big and strong. Right. It's it's huge. It's expansive. But one thing that the establishment even, if you look at Foreign Policy Magazine and these kind of like, you know, Pentagon, Neocon, Think Tank, strategists, if you look at what they say, they actually had a lot of criticism about the pivot to Asia because the United States continued on where it wasn't a clear policy. It wasn't all cooperation or all antagonism all in, or, or all conflict. It was straddling this line because the United States can't decouple economically from China without an economic collapse. 
it, it can't do certain things without an economic collapse. So that's where the weakness of that was pointed out by the establishment. The, establish, the foreign policy establishment was like, get consistent, dude. You know, Obama, like this isn't just because you sent military hardware and personnel and whatever over to the Asia Pacific doesn't mean you're accomplishing anything, right? You need a clear political orientation. You need uh, to make a clear decision about which way are you going? Are you going toward continuing the U.S.-China part, the U.S.-China uh, uh, relationship, or are you for discontinuing it? So that's where the establishment was at, right? Because of course the hawks and and even those who aren't hawks or who are more like realists, they were like, yeah, this is kind of counterproductive. But where I see this as possibly weak where the age pivot age is weak is in the fact that one, this policy is a desperation. It's a policy of desperation. It's a desperate policy. It's one that is influenced by the fact that the United States has nothing to, else to offer. Look at what just happened with the Biden administration's trip to promote the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is the economic side of the Indo-Pacific strategy, which targets China as the main enemy and the need for mobilization of all the countries to keep things safe and blah, blah, blah all that nonsense. So Joe Biden went to South Korea, Japan. There's about 10 other countries that say they're signing on to this agreement, quote unquote. But there's no real teeth to the agreement. There's no real concrete proposals. There's, it's not even legislation in Congress. It's not a policy that has much to it. Even Richard Haas the Council of Foreign Relations president, the, that neocon right think tank, that militarist think tank, the real principal think tank of Wall Street, even he said it had no impact domestically. And I guess talking to allies is nice, but it's not really doing much. And one of the ways you can see that the pivotage is desperate is that in the Indo-Pacific economic framework, the United States is not even willing to open up market access, meaning that as this framework suggests, it is an attempt to build a whole entire supply chain, meaning that all of the rules of trade, all of the rules of economic organization are being going to be discussed and, and then formulated upon and then implemented into some kind of new supply chain independent of China, which I think is a ridiculous assertion. I don't think it's ever going to happen because that's a chore and I don't, I don't know any... <laughs> I don't know anyone trying to make money who would want to do that. So I don't know any economy, any country that would look at that and say, yeah, that's really attractive. Especially since the United States isn't really producing anything. So what? what so not even off, one of the reasons I don't think they're offering market access is because what, what market are we talking about, right? And so a lot of these countries are signing on because they might see it as inter, in additional financing. Maybe they'll see it as additional economic support in some ways right maximizing the options but even countries like south korea and japan firmly anti-china in a lot of ways especially japan and now south korea likely will go that direction but nonetheless these two countries have no there's just no incentive for them to say yeah we'll decouple from china make a new supply chain with the united states like no so the one other ways that this is a desperate policy the pivot asia desperate policy is that it is born from a strategic calculation that the united states has nothing left it is nothing but its military arsenal. 
that it's got to militarize the Asia-Pacific. It has to mobilize these so-called allies in a military formation to contain China and to get ready to try to collapse the government of China, which is a ridiculous thing to even imagine happening if you take into account the fact that China is the biggest economy of Asia, the second largest in the world, has robust supply chains with all of the regional partners you could think of, even the most hostile like Australia, which lucky for the United States, Australia is even more of a kind of a, a pathetic junior partner than even Europe is to the United States around this question of China. So the United States has a friend there, but the rest of in most of the Asia Pacific, whether we're talking about the Philippines, whether we're talking about even South Korea and these other countries, like there's not going to be a decoupling. So the military is all that there is. The military is the only option. And the problem with only having the military as the only option is that the military can't always be used or employed in a lot of situations. So that's why you have this kind of inconsistent policy. You have the United States talking right now about how they're going to increase their presence, how they're going to uh, make sure that Taiwan is safe and all this stuff. So you have this inconsistency of like, yeah, we'll we'll soup up that region, send warships every once in a while, saber rattle over Taiwan, but there's no real there's no real end game other than possibly building up to a big war. And it seems like that is understood in the foreign policy establishment, which is why they talk about a big war with China over Taiwan and whatnot. And so yeah, it feels desperate. That's that's how the pivot to Asia has always felt. Feels desperate. It's all about trying to negate China's influence, reduce its influence. And the U.S. doesn't have many opportunities, many options for doing that other than the military option. And that doesn't always bear so many fruits. So anyway, that is, I think, going to end the stream today. Thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Please do continue to like the stream, like the channel, um, subscribe to the channel. Be sure to hit that notifications bell. And of course, you know, please do consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Danny for any amount per month as I work toward my monthly goal. I have about three left for the month. Um, and, um, you know, I'm about $100 shy from my overall goal. So I'm getting there. It's a slow roll, though. And it's the end of the month is coming. So I know a lot of folks make financial decisions. So, you know, it's just uh, day in and day out um, trying to build that support. And I appreciate all of you who are able. So thank you so much. I will see you again another time. Hopefully I have a guest. Hopefully I have Margaret. Um, but as I said before, uh, thank you for the super chat. Um, as I said before, yeah, motivation has been tough lately. You know, it's hard to get guests. It's hard to produce this thing every, you know, every so often. And then also, right. I have an article kind of on the way trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, but yeah, you'll see me again soon, probably next week. I've been trying to get guests, but it's tough. So it may just be me depending on what's going on in the world. But nonetheless, you know, um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of considerations. I think a lot, you know, things ebb and flow and projects like this. Uh, I'm hoping to be able to continue to build up. But there's just a lot 
uh, it's hard to stay motivated when there's a lot of opposition. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of work to be done, and it doesn't always feel like it's here. And so, uh, but I come back because I know that there are people who find it valuable, and um, I know that it's a valuable medium and form. So yeah, to be continued. But I will continue to. Um, but I will continue to be on and continue to figure out how to, how to make this work. So, uh, yeah. And continue my writing, continue all of that. So that's why I appreciate all the support you're able to provide to this channel, to all of my work. And with that said, salute everyone and peace out. I'll be back again soon. I'll let you all know.